Mentally Unscripted, Episode 33, Hubris and Misaligned Incentives, Mental Models in a Time of War. Hello and welcome to Mentally Unscripted, the podcast that's devoted to helping you improve your thinking. Today we're going to be talking about mental models that can help us put some context around the decisions around the Afghanistan war, as well as the decisions to leave it. We're going to be talking about those two components, breaking it into what we thought about 20 years ago when the United States invaded Afghanistan, and then decisions and mental models when we're actually doing the exit. Timely episode, uh, many of us are, are glued to our TVs or the internet reading about the reports coming out of Afghanistan as the U.S. military and the other armed forces there are looking to exit the country and the uh, the government falls. So we wanted to put some context around it because we believe it's not just Afghanistan, but it's all wars and all conflicts that we can apply some mental models just to create some additional clarity. And it's been a rough week for me reading and seeing the news accounts coming out of Afghanistan for so many reasons. Scott, I guess as you see what's coming out of that country, what is your initial reaction? My initial reaction is I wonder if we can really call this a failure or if everyone calls this a failure. I think we had, like you mentioned in the title, there's a lot of misaligned incentives here. There's a lot of people involved who have different incentives. And I think, not to get too conspiracy theory-ish here, but there was a contingent of people in the U.S. who wanted to see this war drag on for as long as possible. Everything from defense contractors to some folks in various administrations to people in the Pentagon. From that aspect, I think the war was probably a rousing success for them. In fact, the only failure is that they couldn't keep it going longer. But I think from a national standpoint, And from a less arrogant standpoint, less selfish standpoint, the entire thing was a failure. We obviously knew early on, based off the Afghanistan papers, that there wasn't a consensus on what our goals were. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit to begin with the end in mind. And people who were over there really didn't know what they were over there for. They were just doing some job. There was apparently a lot of atomization where some people were told, you just do this. And they didn't understand what the bigger picture was or why they were doing it. I've never tried to operate a war. So I get that there's a lot of moving parts. I think the same argument that we use against communism, the idea that there's too much information in an economy for one person or small group of people to process and make rational decisions on, I imagine it's the same thing in a war where there's just too much information for people to be able to process and make the optimal decisions, which would bring me to the next question is, and I think what we're going to get at in this podcast is why didn't we figure that out? Why didn't we know that going in? Right. I think that's a great question starting off with, is this a failure? If you're watching mainstream media or alternative media, there's a lot of discussion about failure. It's easy to look at this from a political spin point of view where the right wants to blame Biden for the failure. Many on the left are looking at at Biden's failure. You could look at the right and they're pushing for it going all the way back to George Bush and then under Donald Trump as not actually taking the best steps to actually extricate us from that country. So th- there's plenty of blame to go around if we want to call it a failure. Then there's the point of what is the actual objective? Did we meet that? To the point that you made earlier about what was our reasoning for going into Afghanistan? It appears that there's just so much muddy water about why we were there, why we sustained our, our presence there, and then even why we're getting out now. And that really hurts the ability to answer the question, It was it a failure? I agree with you that from what I've read, 
led, it appears that it became a business. Military as a business. It's almost like software as a business, SaaS software, it's military as a business. And we need to be aware of that when you have incentives to make the military a slush fund, it's a very strong incentive to maintain the status quo. And that is a problem. That is a problem because as Matt Taibbi wrote about this week, referencing, I think, the Afghanistan papers as well as other accounts, the amount of corruption in terms of how we were spending the money in Afghanistan, where the money was going, how it was being invested, as well as the oversight that we had for the people that were our partners in country that were doing humanitarian acts that go against our ideals. It's astonishing. I look at those as an outgrowth of this war or military as a business, that the incentives allow for that. So I think those are good concepts to keep in mind as we look at this. But I want to be unequivocal when I say the withdrawal from Afghanistan is an absolute failure. What I'm seeing from accounts on the ground, which I think run the full gamut of the Taliban showing some restraint today, which I don't expect them to sustain over some period showing some constraint, uh, or restraint rather, versus the mothers that are throwing their babies over razor wire to try and get them out of the country, or the young men that tried to hold on to an airplane as it took off and fell to their death. The images are striking. And then we have many, many other accounts. There's no question that from a logistics perspective, this has been an absolute failure to leave. There's many other failures that we can talk about. So let's get into how we wanted to break this apart, which was two parts. The first is thinking about making the decision to wage war or conflict in Afghanistan. The second is a logistics question of how do you actually leave a war zone where you haven't actually conquered the enemy, (laughs) assuming that we actually know what the enemy is, right? Let's talk about the very first question. I recall when the discussions were ongoing, watching C-SPAN, listening to our political leadership at the time talk about Afghanistan, the need to go in there and eradicate al-Qaeda from Afghanistan. And the the propaganda that was there about how the parties that were in Afghanistan were propping up al-Qaeda, allowing it to operate freely. They had just attacked us. We're we're post 9-11. We watched 3,000 Americans die. And then obviously we we knew that many more were going to die later because of helping to rescue those people, our firemen, our police uh, men and women. America was wounded. It was scarred. And it was feeling the need to lash out. And what we saw was this justification for going into Afghanistan. Do you think it's an accurate statement to say when that campaign was building that they actually had an end goal in mind? That's a good question. And before I start answering, like I said before, I understand that there was a lot of different people involved in this. So I don't want to come across as saying that I think that there is one universal mode of thinking about the war. There was a lot of different people, like we said, with a lot of different incentives. So I don't want to say that everyone thought X or everyone thought Y. I'm only looking at it through what I've read and heard about, and I'm trying to just generalize about the situation. In effect, I'm trying to, and I think, I don't want to speak for you, Paul, but I think we're trying to put ourselves in the role of the reasonable person looking at this and saying what seems to have gone wrong. When we're talking about, did we have an end goal in mind? I think the American people had an end goal in mind, which was to get Osama bin Laden. But I think there was a contingent of cronies and politicians who had a different end goal in mind, which was to get into a war. And that's what we talked about, misaligned incentives. Scott Horton wrote a really great book called Fool's Air and Time to End the War in Afghanistan. In the book, he explains how this war could have been over with in like a year or two, that we had al-Qaeda on the ropes, we had them on the run, we could have finished it, and we didn't. And instead, we diverted resources all across the country to fighting the Taliban. And what's interesting is that the Taliban, they weren't fans of bin Laden. 
I mean, there may have been some who were fans of Bin Laden, but generally they weren't fans of Bin Laden and they were willing to work with the U.S. to get Bin Laden and the U.S. turned them down. When I think about it, I try to think of it as, as a baseline. So we know that Al-Qaeda attacked us. The official narrative was that Al-Qaeda hates us because of our freedom. They hate McDonald's, Mickey Mouse and the Marlboro Man. And the reality, as Ron Paul pointed out to Rudy Giuliani back in the presidential debates, is that it was blowback for our Middle East foreign policy. And so we had a choice. We could do nothing, which, like you said, we weren't going to do that. We could work with the Taliban or we can invade Afghanistan. So from a national standpoint, I think working with the Taliban would have been the best thing to do. It may have made us look a little bad because the Taliban had a reputation for not being the nicest people in the world. But heck, I mean, we work with the Saudis and just shrug our shoulders at their human rights violations. So why would we not just work with the Taliban the same way? When I look at this, why did we invade this country that, I mean, let's face it, historically, and there had to be people in the government, in the military who knew that you don't invade Afghanistan and come out a winner. I, I don't know. I don't know. They could go to Wikipedia and look up the history. It's not hard. And I mean, we're not just talking about the Russians. I mean, just go back through the history. Didn't even Alexander right. the Great wasn't able to conquer Afghanistan or something? Right. It's a graveyard of empires. So why would these elected leaders and these top-ranking military people, these people who were supposed to be smart and run the country, not look at it and understand that? Especially since we had just, within, what, the last 20 years, bled Russia dry by helping the Taliban, or what became the Taliban, fight the Russians. I want to point out a few models that people can consider when we're being told by our political elite and by our media that we need to consider action and conflict. And so one of the ones you pointed out, it's the opposite of the simplest reason, maybe the most justified. We talk about that. You don't have to look to malice. You don't have to think people are bad. I think, is it Occam's razor that we talk about that, right? The simplest explanation is often is the one that you should consider. In times when we're looking at foreign affairs and how we interact with other countries' politics, culture, objectives, goals. It's the opposite. There's multiple layers of complexity here. And you just pointed out many of them. Afghanistan is a highly tribal culture. Prior to us invading, they had pretty much a hundred years of moving up and down between different conflicts and wars, including 10 years in which the Russians were supporting the pro-communist faction in the country. If you have this tribal makeup and you have this terrain, which is impossible to hold because of the, the mountainous areas, it's, it's inhospitable. You have a very difficult region to understand. And so to simplistically say that everyone is supportive of Al-Qaeda and that they're coming after us and this is where they're based and we need to go make a decision there. That's a good point to pause and to ask the question, what is the political makeup there? And I can tell you from having a little bit better understanding of the Iraq, I would say makeup of the government there. Most of the rationale used to invade Iraq and go after Saddam Hussein was really corrupted and poor thing. And I have to imagine that we had scholars who are not necessarily part of the military, who were perhaps advisors that could easily point you to the fact that the on the ground, the situation is different. So again, thinking about what you're talking about, Ask, what are the incentives here that are focusing us on a, on a specific direction for conflict? What is the actual landscape on the ground? And what is the complexity there in terms of the history, political alignments, goals? And then lastly, asking, what is our end goal? And I think you made a very valid point. We have to reflect on our own situation, our own set of incentives as a country. The American people may have agreed to a invasion to go kill Osama bin Laden because of the attack on 9-11. But they didn't agree to nation build in Afghanistan. 
That was not the end goal. So I think those three models or those three questions should be asked when the next time this comes up. And believe us when we tell you it will happen again. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think what complicated it, and I think our leaders knew, is that Al-Qaeda wasn't that big. So if the goal was to go get Al-Qaeda, then they knew that we could probably take care of that pretty quick. So what they had to do was they had to enlarge the enemy. They had to conflate Al-Qaeda with the Taliban and create that larger enemy that required that we invade an entire country. This goes to the idea of framing. They had to frame this conflict in a way that was going to drum up support for invasion of an entire country. Because if they said we were just going to get the Taliban, then a lot of people would have said, why are we going in with so much force? Why aren't we just going in with the minimum of what we need to get? I think at the time there was like 400 Al-Qaeda members hiding out in Afghanistan, and they were all in the same area. That's one really great mental model is when you're hearing the story, look at it and say, is this the true story? Is this really what's going on? And just a little bit of a history lesson would tell you that the Taliban, the people we're fighting with, were the people we supported during the Russian war in Afghanistan. And then the Northern Alliance, the people that the rebels that we allied with now were the people we were fighting against in the Russian-Afghanistan war. Just that should tell you that something's maybe a little off here. And just another little history lesson, Clinton helped the Taliban come to power. He favored them. So it's another situation where one group is our friend today, and then tomorrow we turn them into an enemy because it comes politically convenient for us. Right. I want to bring up a topic that you didn't say it specifically, but there is this default to be biased to our own morality and our own perception of morality. And it makes sense. You think that other people think the way that you do. We've talked about on this podcast several times, the idea of the moral foundations theory made very popular by Jonathan Haidt. And rather than look at the six pillars of that, you can just take a step back and think more meta and think about, is it true that everyone has this hierarchy, this moral foundation? And is it just possible that the people over there have a different view of what that morality is. And if that's the case, how am I supposed to say that my morality is superior to theirs? Now, I read accounts going back to the 90s of what the Taliban did, and they are horrific. They're a barbarian. That doesn't actually take away from the fact that they have a different morality stance. And then it gets into the next question of, well, if they have a different morality, do I have the superiority to impose my will on them? And what is my justification for that? Is it saving the men and women of Afghanistan? because they're human souls? Do I have then a moral obligation to be helping people based on my own morality? And you can see right there, you start to have a conflict. And I'm not suggesting that we can't make decisions and create conflict for our own morality. What I'm stating, though, is that we need to understand that we're going into an eyes wide open, that Clinton was fine with propping up the Taliban against the other enemy. There was a geopolitical decision that was made. There was perhaps at the time, the morality of the Taliban was referred to the morality of the opposition. But that's what it is. There is no superiority here that we can claim. I prefer my morality. I prefer the United States democracy and our ideals, but I can't actually have a justification for saying it's superior in all circumstances around the world. I'm going to fight for it. I will continue to fight for it, but that should give all of us a pause. And I think that actually gets into when we talk about goalpost movement, like they've done with the Taliban, which again is a brutal regime by all accounts, by the way that we look. There's no way that I can say it any other way. They are not the only brutal regime that exists on the planet. In fact, we operate with different states. You mentioned Saudi Arabia. We operate with different countries all over the world that are brutal. And what is our obligation? 
Are we expected to go defend every single citizen that's ever been tortured or destroyed? That's a question we should ask. I just shared my answer. I don't think we can do that. I don't think we have the capacity to do it. And that's not until we're forced into it, we can't do that would be my most honest answer. But anyways, I wanted to bring that up because I do think that's important to these conversations. I agree. I think all you have to do is look at this idea that we're going to be greeted as liberators. I know that was something that George Bush said in relation to Iraq, but I think the feeling was the same with Afghanistan, that we were going to roll in and just hand people a Western-style democracy and they were going to love it without taking the time to understand the culture of the people who live there. I heard a story that some of these farmers are so remote from any big cities that when American troops showed up, they thought that they they were Russian troops. These farmers thought that the American troops were Russian troops. They didn't even know that the war with Russia had ended. I just heard that somewhere and I don't know independent verification on that, but it would sound reasonable to me that there would be some very remote areas of this country that didn't even know what was going on. And we expect to just roll in there and tell them to change the way they've been living for who knows how long. I think there was a lot of hubris there. I think you're right. I think we went in and we just tried to impose a new system of morality on people who really didn't want or maybe even need a new system of morality. Yeah, well, let's be honest. If we reflect on the creation of the United States, you have people that come in from another continent. You have the natives that are living here. The new people that come in dominate the natives that are here over over a couple hundred years. And then they decide that they no longer want the yoke of England. That wasn't universal. That wasn't universally believed. There were many people that were loyalists to the monarchy. They preferred that. They didn't want to be part of the conflict. They didn't want to be part of the revolution. Fast forward then a hundred years, and then you have a, a civil war that's fought between people talking about the concept of slavery, where some people obviously were against it. Others were perhaps much more uh, sympathetic to it. And then there were other people that were perhaps in the middle saying, well, you know, I don't really like slavery, but I'm not really sure I want to fight for it. It's complex. But we have a history in this country of trying to figure out what is it we want in terms of democracy, in terms of our liberty and our freedom. To expect that we can then just take that model and superimpose it completely goes against what we understand about human nature and about how cultures evolve. To me, it's it's a very basic concept. Nation building can only be done internally. If the Afghanis, or take any country, and they are fighting and they have the will to do it. And they don't have the corruption. They do have the organization. You can see supporting that cause. That is very different from going in there and telling them, well, now we're going to help you create a democratic system. You're going to expect that everyone on the ground, not just in these remote areas, but in your cities are going to understand what that system is and how to operate with that mindset. Certainly some of them are going to greet us as liberators. And we saw that. We saw that in Afghanistan. We saw many people that were happy to have us there. You saw others, not at all. We're sitting in their country as invaders. So there's some complexity here that we have to be aware of. And to me, the lesson here unequivocally has to be that we cannot nation build. We can help other nations build themselves, but we cannot nation build. It is a failed experiment. We've tried it many times and we have never been successful at least not to my way of thinking. Let's move on. I'm really interested in getting to this next topic. Did you have anything else about moral foundation? No, not at all. Let's, let's, yeah, let's move on to the next one. And for me, that is being the reasonable person. What would we consider before deciding to invade? Mm-hmm. We would have to do some sort of a risk assessment. I just wonder if anybody did that, if they looked at the cost benefits of trying to go into this country. And we mentioned before, this is a country that's called the graveyard of empires for a reason. Did anyone look at that and say, okay, the benefit here is going to be 
be pretty minimal. We're going to get back at Bin Laden. But the rest of it, I don't know. Were they really looking at all the rare earth minerals that are in Afghanistan and other resources that are there? Were they looking at conquering it in order to use it as a post, essentially, right on the border of China? I don't know. So I don't know what they were looking at as far as the benefit of this goes. But just the reasonable person sitting here looking at it, I would have to say that eh, I don't see the costs and the benefits adding up to making this a good decision. I was going to say, so the benefit, if you're able to disrupt Al-Qaeda, theoretically, is that you can no longer have attacks on your people and your citizens, as well as theoretically preventing future attacks from other organizations that want to do something similar. The flaw in that logic is that these men and women, are, including the 19 that flew planes into the towers, as well as other locations, are willing to die for their cause. So, Killing them after the fact doesn't really disrupt them long term. It degrades that benefit substantially, in my view. And I think to the next question, what are the other benefits that were being plotted out? That's a question we should be asking ourselves. And going back to this concept, what are the incentives? To your point, what is the risk assessment that's being made? We should be asking those questions. You as citizens, we should all be asking these questions. Right. And I think when you factor in the idea that we could have worked with the Taliban, there may have been a cost there of we would be have been on a very public stage working with a brutal regime. So there maybe would have been some criticism from that. But again, we don't seem to shy away from that in other cases. But the benefit would have been that we could have potentially gotten bin Laden and Al-Qaeda without a whole lot of effort and risk. But we chose not to do that. It makes me think of opportunity costs, though. We ended up undertaking a huge cost. What was it, like 230 million dollars a day I think is what someone was estimating we spent on the war. Just some incredible amount of money. What could we have done with that money if we weren't dumping it into Afghanistan? So if we had worked with the Taliban, we had gone in there, gotten Al-Qaeda, and gotten out, where would we be today? Right. I have a fantasy about that, to be honest. I thought about that 20 years ago. I thought about what if Bush had said, we are, instead of retaliating the way that they want us to, which is to enmesh us in a 20-year conflict where we spend a huge amount of treasure and life to basically wind up with nothing 20 years later, we could have spent that money, as you said, in investing in our infrastructure, investing in our oil and energy security, investing in our intelligence and our allyship with other countries that share our ideals, and pushed those extremes, those people that are in the extreme, at least to our way of thinking, like Al-Qaeda, further to the edge. And said, well, we're just not going to play with you. And you can have your brutal living over here. We're going to continue to improve our way of life. That is the opportunity cost. And that, again, that's the same question we're going to need to ask ourselves the next time there's a justification for this. What could we do with the money? Exactly. Of course, I guess since everybody's following MMT now, there's just unlimited money. <laughs> but there's still a cost in resources. The Pentagon is the biggest non-national, non-nation polluter in the world. If you just looked at the Pentagon as a company or an organization, it's the biggest polluter in the world. So how much of all of this Green New Deal in the world's going to end in what are we at? Doomsday clock is 10 years now, according to AOC or something. How much could we have helped by not having all this military presence over in Afghanistan all this time? Right. I would think that if we didn't go into Afghanistan, would we have still found a justification to go into Iraq and into Syria, Libya, into Yemen? Well, I know technically we're not at war in Yemen. We're just helping the Saudis. But still, would all of those other countries have followed if we hadn't gone into Afghanistan? My understanding is that there was a plan on the table for us to take down like seven countries 
over there. From what I can remember, that seemed to be a plan that was in place before 9-11. So maybe this all would have happened away and 9-11 was just a convenient excuse. But when we're talking about cost benefit, though, I think we really have to ask ourselves that question. What was the benefit that we were going to get out of this? And was it worth the cost? It's easy in hindsight to look back on it and say, obviously, no. But my question is, is did we look at it before we went? And you have to consider for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Put that in our notes, law of inertia. When we went over there and did what we did, we had to know that we were going to end up just making the other side grow. I think someone referred to it as insurgent math. For every one we kill, we create 10 new ones. So I just wonder if someone knew that going over there was a losing proposition in the beginning, and yet we still did it anyway. Well, again, we're talking about these models and how to be asking ourselves before the conflict happens. And there's two of them that come to mind. One of them is how reversible is your decision? Once you land troops on the ground, once you build a base, once you start to build infrastructure, you have both momentum moving in one direction and you have the difficulty of extracting, which is exactly what we've seen here. There's also the decision of the political alliances. Once they're burned, how easy is it to to rebuild them? And you talked about being able to make an unholy alliance with the Taliban potentially to achieve this other goal of eradicating Al-Qaeda. I want to come back to that one, though, because there is a problem of framing the problem. And I, I think you mentioned that. When we're presented with this idea that we need to engage in conflict, we really need to be asking, what is the problem that we're solving? And you, you mentioned that generally in terms of the cost benefit. But if you ask at a higher level, I know I include this in the notes, are we talking about a moral imperative? An eye for an eye, they came after us, we have to go after them. Then we talked a little bit about this idea that there's a safety benefit that we accrue from being able to show the world that we can eliminate this threat. But then there's a lot of counter information. And we talked previous episode about looking for disconfirming information to think about ways in which perhaps your analysis is inaccurate. And we have this concept of the insurgent math that we see. We know that if we look at the social media landscape, we're seeing these people pop up all over the world that are talking about how they want to take America down. So we're actually creating a breeding ground for these bad ideas. So go back to the question, what is the problem that we're actually looking to solve here? Is it just taking revenge on a very evil man like Osama bin Laden? Is it actually creating additional safety? And then I think you can ask yourself a very simple question. How many times has conflict led to sustained prosperity that would justify giving us that additional safety? Or is there another problem that they want to solve, which in this case could be, it's the unspoken problem of, well, we need a place for our military to land for 10 years. So we're going to figure out a justification for it. We need to ask ourselves, do we have the right problem? Do we understand what problem we're being told they are solving? And then is the solution that they are proposing adequate and appropriate for the type of problem? I think those are good questions we can be asking ourselves the next time we're being told, here's a measure, here's the conflict, here's the reason it's justified, this is why we need to do it. Hey everyone, I wanted to break in here and remind you to go check out the Mental Supermodels podcast. We had Myron, one of the Mental Supermodels hosts, on episode 32 of Mentally Unscripted. It was a great conversation about mental models, so be sure to go give them a listen. That's Mental Supermodels. Exactly. And when we look at this problem, if we land on the problem that we're solving being safety for Americans around the world, look, they flew planes into our buildings, so that proves we're not safe. We can look at alternative solutions to that. We know history didn't begin on 9-11-2001. The U.S. was in the Middle East messing around going back to the 60s. Bin Laden's attack, according to Bin Laden himself, was blowback for the U.S.'s meddling in foreign policy over in the Middle East. Okay, sorry, I was on mute there. So when we're talking about 
the problem. We have to come up with what the problem is. Then we have to have a proposed solution, but then we also have to have alternative solutions. So when we are talking about those alternative solutions, if our problem is safety, sure, one solution would be to invade and just wipe everyone out in a show of force. But another solution could be to look back and look at how we caused the problem and figure out how we can change. What is the root cause of the problem? So one of bin Laden's stated reasons for wanting to attack the U.S. was because the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East going back to the 60s was bad. He didn't like it. We were interfering too much over there. So he attacked us. That was blowback for our foreign policy. Again, if we're concerned about safety, then maybe we could dial back that foreign policy a bit and not be doing things to get people mad at us that would make them want to go through all this effort to fly planes into our buildings. That's where framing came in really hard is that's why they kept saying they attacked us because of our freedom. They didn't want to say they attacked us because we're over there screwing around. We're over there killing people. And so the propaganda is a big deal. So you have to try to cut through the propaganda and you have to say, okay, like you mentioned, are we trying to solve the correct problem here? And do we have the best solution for that for solving that problem? Right. And I want to be clear, because I know the blowback theory, and I agree with parts of it, that there's no question that someone who feels oppressed and views us as the oppressor is going to want to retaliate. And I think that's a reasonable expectation. I don't know why we would think it wasn't. We're of the same mindset, right? If someone's going to oppress us, we're going to want to retaliate. There is another vantage point, though, to view this problem. And it's that we're operating in areas that have a different, again, a different moral landscape and a different political makeup in terms of the tribalism and the way in which society and culture operates areas. They, and this is a generalization, right? But I mean, if you have someone like Al-Qaeda, is it reasonable to expect that if the United States was never in the Middle East, that there'd be no conflict there? I think that is, there's no evidence that that would be the case in my opinion. If I look at Iraq and Iran, yes, we helped propped up the uh, Iraqis during the Iraq-Iran war that went on, I believe, for eight or nine years. We did support that. They were going to be fighting anyways. And a lot of this has to go back to hundreds and hundreds of years, a difference in perspectives and conflict that exists within the region. So I think it's unrealistic to say that there'd be no conflict or somehow it's entirely the United States' fault for all of the issues that exist within the Middle East. Again, that's being too biased and looking at us and being too and having too much hubris. On the other end, and it's a spectrum, it's easy to look at the failed policies that we have of the dictators that we support in these countries. And we support them with money, we support them with logistics and with arms. When we do that, we are going to create enemies. And them being enemies is not to say that they don't have a justification. This is, if there's anything I think that's coming out of this conversation in my mind, it's having the ability to reflect on what we're doing and be honest with it. and realizing that I think the point's well made. It's possible that we wouldn't have a 9-11 moment if we hadn't done certain policies in these regions. It's possible. It's quite possible. We may have had something else. We may have gotten into a different conflict, but perhaps they wouldn't have seen us as the enemies, at least, you know, Al-Qaeda. And again, there's other people that don't see us as the enemies, our, our way of life and our way of operation. They are more tolerant. The least tolerant of these groups are the ones that you are going to be in conflict with. And that's what this conversation is about. It's centered on Afghanistan, but it's really about conflict. And I think you're right. There would have still been conflict in the Middle East without the U.S.'s involvement over there. But how much of the conflict would have been directed at the U.S. if we weren't over there? 
And I think that's the right question to ask. And again, this is why it is so disappointing to think about the opportunity cost of us not investing in energy security, in our education, in our way of life over here and assuming it has to be linked to oil interests in the Middle East, or it has to be linked to mineral interests in other parts of the world. It's unrealistic to think that we can be isolationist. That's just, I think, a, an idea that's from the 20th or 19th century. We can't be that, but that doesn't mean that we can't focus on how to secure ourselves better. If you did that at the beginning, you ask yourself, how reversible are these decisions? What are the incentives? What is the momentum going to move into? And then what are the, the other ways in which we could be investing this money? All of a sudden, it makes it a lot easier to take the idea of invading a country to kill 400 men who attacked us in a horrible way. It takes that and makes it a lot more palatable to say, well, yeah, we're, we're going to take revenge on this. We're going to take revenge by showing them in 20 years that we have 100x where we were, that we have no reliance on them anymore, that we'd never have to worry about them ever again. They can create all kinds of harm on that part of the world. We're not going to have to worry about it. Again, framing the problem and thinking about different solutions. So you put some other comments in here, talked a little bit about hubris. You want to talk a little bit about probabilistic thinking and some of these other challenges that we have when we're thinking about the decision matrix and the risk matrix? We've hammered probabilistic thing quite a bit past episodes. So I just wanted to bring up this idea of the Bayesian casino. I had never heard of this before until I read an article on Farnham Street. If I understood it correctly, it's a type of probabilistic thinking, but you think of yourself as being in a casino and you're saying, how much money am I willing to bet given my certainty of some particular outcome. When I think about that in Afghanistan, the question would be, how much money and how many people am I willing to sacrifice in order for the return that I'm going to get and the certainty I'm going to get that return? Good, great question. Great question. So that brings me to my next bias here is the optimism or overconfidence bias. I think we severely underestimated how much money we were going to have to put down on the table in order to make that bet. When you look at optimism bias, it can be broken down into three subcategories. There's overprecision, and that's an optimism bias that causes us to draw too narrow of a confidence interval. So we're too sure that our decisions and our judgments are that causes us to not test our assumptions. And it also causes us to ignore disconfirming evidence. I could definitely see us being in that category. Then there's overestimation that causes us to overestimate how much we can accomplish in a given amount of time. I don't know how much of this was a factor because there was a contingent, I think, who just wanted to see this go on as long as possible. So I don't know if anyone was really thinking about how much time we were going to do. The one that I think is most important is overplacement. So overplacement is what causes us to be too interested in competing when we should be cooperating. So overplacement can lead to more lawsuits, dragging on negotiations longer than they should, and wars. It's the idea that we think we're strong enough to beat anybody so we don't have to work with you. We're just going to impose our will on you. And I think just given the evidence of the U.S.'s attitude, especially since the Soviet Union fell. I think we're really squarely in that overplacement optimism bias category, right? I think we have this attitude that we can just walk into anywhere and turn it into a parking lot if we need to and walk out. And Afghanistan showed us that we can't. And doesn't that really highlight the challenge that we're thinking that it's a parking lot that's the issue? Again, we, we don't even understand the problem well enough. We're not thinking about the political dynamic, the societal and cultural dynamic of having to rebuild a society. It's again, if you're, you know, the old adage, right? If I'm a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I think these are really powerful concepts to keep in the back of your head when you're being asked these questions. Imagine being asked the question, we're going to go hunt down bin Laden. It's going to cost us $2 trillion. Oof. Are we willing to put $2 trillion on the line to come get this man? 
could those $2 trillion be invested differently? Imagine just giving money to <laughs> schools and education and energy. I mean, it really does put into very concrete terms what you're actually willing to risk, what you're actually willing to spend. And those, I think, are, again, powerful concepts that we need to be asking ourselves. Clearly, I'm, I'm anti-conflict and anti-war. I, I think that it should be the method of last resort. You know, maybe I'm using these to justify it, but it it does seem that if you ask the American public, hey, you've spent $2 trillion in Afghanistan, it's now in the hands of a regime that 20 years ago we said we wanted to eradicate. Does that bother you? I think most taxpayers would say absolutely. This was a horrible investment of our money. Did you ever hear the story that bin Laden was happy cheering when he found out that Bush and Cheney got elected <laughs> because he knew it would be so much easier to pull the U.S. into a war right. that would bleed us dry? Maybe I've heard that years ago. I'm really not surprised. Why, and why did he think that? Because that's the exact play that happened with the Soviet Union. Right, which we taught him. How right, do, exactly. Exactly. I think we've hammered on a lot of the ideas about the before you're going to look at conflict and before obviously we looked into Afghanistan. Is there anything else before we start talking a little bit about exiting? One thing I wanted to bring up, I don't know if you want to get into this in exiting, but one of the justifications for saying staying there for so long was it's the sunk cost fallacy, the well we've already spent so much money and time over there, we can't leave now mentality. The sunk cost fallacy is when you look at your past costs, so you just continue spending and spending and spending, thinking that you're somehow going to solve the problem that you haven't already been able to solve. The theory is, is that no, you just, you cut your losses at some point and get out. And it's surprising because that's a really basic fallacy that I know a lot of people have talked about in relation to some of these ongoing conflicts that we've been having, yet people just keep violating it over and over. I think what people do is they come up with a justification for it. Then they end up convincing themselves. So we heard it with Afghanistan that, well, we can't leave because the women and the children are going to get destroyed or going to get slaughtered and treated poorly. I think some people, they understand the sunk cost fallacy. They understand, well, we've been there for 20 years. We haven't accomplished anything. So they come up with some other justification to try to reason out why we need to continue with a failing path. And for anybody who's going to listen to this and say, well, you guys aren't being realistic. What else could, could have been done? Well, if your concern was for the men and women in that country, you could offer them residency and citizenship in a different country that is more hospitable. Yes, that's complex. That's expensive. That's hard. Well, what have we just experienced in 20 years in Afghanistan? Was it not the same? That's the way that you should be asking those questions. There's a little bit of creativity there, right? But when you think about the justification, as you're saying, the sunk cost fallacy, well, we've already spent this money. We got to continue moving in this direction. It's going, no, it hasn't been working. We should be aware of that. And if you have these other concerns, what are the other solutions that we can put on the table to address them and not keep on investing in a losing venture. Yes, absolutely. I think the sunk cost fallacy is 100% relevant to any conflict and it's particularly one that's been dragged on. And the other point that we'd make there is goalpost move. In goal was to go out and disrupt Al-Qaeda. Then clearly the goalposts were moved to nation build. I already shared my opinion on nation building. I don't think we have a successful pattern for doing so. So I would not suggest that. But let's say it wasn't nation building. What if it was some other goal? Well, first of all, the, the first trigger should be, well, wait a second, we moved the goalpost. So why did we move? Is there new data on the ground? Perhaps we've become aware of a new threat, a realistic threat. So you could see it where they're on the ground, they kidnapped or killed all of these Al-Qaeda, and they find that there's a new network with people they can directly go kill. And it's on the border with Pakistan. So we need to now go into Pakistan. 
to disrupt that. Isolate that. That's a specific problem. You don't need to move the goalpost. You should be asking, okay, now we have this new problem. We think that has, uh, you can apply the same concepts that we talked about, the probabilistic thinking. Is it going to be a danger to us? When is it going to be a danger to us? What is the cost of dealing with it? Is there a different way we, sh- we could be dealing with it? Those are questions you could be asked, not just, well, we can move the goalpost now, and now we need a nation build. Now we need to protect women and children. Going back to the point I made earlier, do we have a moral justification for staying in a country forever to protect women and children? That's a question that's much more than just you and I. That's a question that has to go for our society at large. I don't think we have the resources to sustain it globally. All right, let's talk a little bit about leaving. We've already talked about ways in which you could be asking yourself models and questions you'd be asked about for going into conflict. Now, once you're in conflict, it's not as easy as just walking back. We talked about the reversibility concept, right? You've already blown up infrastructure. You've already killed leaders. You've already created a lot of bloodshed and you've already created a a lot of hatred. If you leave, it's possible that there's a power vacuum like we saw in Iraq or like we're seeing in Afghanistan where a regime that you claim to hate is now taking over. The way you exit matters. We both want to be clear here. We're not military strategists. So we're not going to get into a tactical conversation about what is it that we could have done differently. But I think there are some questions we could be looking at, particularly because right now there's a defense game going on between the White House administration and the reporters who are asking, well, did you foresee this? And you can see that there's different in conflicting information coming back, the intel services are saying, well, we didn't really know this. This was not really planned. But then you have some rumblings that perhaps they knew more about it. The military saying, well, we're surprised by what happened. The White House saying there was no way they could have planned differently. This was always going to be a disaster. Okay. The first question in my mind is, you know that you're leaving. You've made an agreement with the Taliban. This was started under the previous administration that they agreed that we would leave after X date and that if anything happened to our military and any of our people and the other people that we're going to remove, then the deal would be off the table. Then the new administration comes in. They say, we're going to stick to that deal, maybe make a few changes in the deadline. Apparently, from the news I've read, this wasn't communicated to other allies who had people in country. And there was confusion potentially between the military, the White House, intelligence, just about what the end goal was. Was it really to move out? So I come back to the question, do you think that it's a logistics question that we're talking about? Is it a humanitarian question? Is it a political? Is it all three? How do you think we look at the actual problem that we're solving here? Well, I think it's all. But I think we can take some of the models that we looked at for getting into the war and look at it here, too. Like you mentioned, begin with the end in mind, know what your objective is, and make sure everyone's on the same page. Personally, I don't believe that the White House, the military, and everybody was on different pages because we know that just doesn't happen to us. Our, you know, our government is always in lockstep. With each other. No, I'm of just course. kidding. There. <laughs> of course. I'm just kidding about that. No, I'm not surprised that one, one hand didn't know what the other. So yeah, what's your goal here? And then start looking at your alternatives. Rate each one. Do your cost-benefit analysis. And then just pick the one that is going to give you the least cost, the highest benefit. You may get it wrong. Analyzing these things, it's, I mean, it's not just like sitting down and doing your math homework. You may get it wrong, but at least you've got something to look at. You know, I wonder how much a little bit of priming would have worked here too. If Biden had just gone public and said, listen, getting out of these things is messy. We know that. And we're going to have contingency plans in place. We're going to do the best we can, but there's going to be some hiccups. There's going to be some bad news coming out. We know that. And we're doing the best we can to limit that. Instead, I don't recall him saying really anything before the withdrawal. 
strong. I think the information was the opposite. The, he was touting the strength of the resources and the, the, the military in country. Right. He was talking about the fact that there was almost zero chance of the Taliban taking over while we were still in country. Quite the opposite. And I think you make a great point. The, the idea of priming for the reality, th- that would have made a huge difference. That would have prepared. Well, first of all, it would have done several things in my opinion. It would have prepared the public for the horrific scenes that we would have inevitably seen anyways, because I have no faith that the Taliban is going to be less brutal than it was before. So clearly there's going to be horrible things coming out of that country, but it would have made it seem as if there was competence in the White House saying, listen, we expect this to be messy and we're going to do everything we can to make it less messy. The next thing that comes to mind is I don't see a commitment from the administration that every single resource is going to be moved out of country. That to me is problematic because it feels like dithering. There's wishful thinking on this one end. Well, we're just going to be able to leave the resources in country are going to be able to sustain. We're not going to have to worry about it. But it also doesn't see, show the, the amount of resolve that I would expect. I think that's a problem. <laughs> I think that's a that's a huge problem. And it, it brings up a couple of other ideas. But I, I wanted, did you have another part of that point that you wanted to extend? No. I'm done. Okay. Well, there's a couple of military specific mental models that we can be asking ourselves and looking at when we're we're thinking about this problem. So I think it's primarily a question of logistics. How do we actually move people and military might out of the country in a timely fashion? I think that's the first question that we were dealing with. But I think that question was subordinated to these other questions, which were about political optics, which is one of the reasons that we saw the the White House not prime the the people of the country. And now we see them being defensive, coming back and saying, well, this was always going to be the case. And then you have the other issues of humanitarian that Again, I think they were inevitable because of the other dynamics, the political dynamics that made it difficult for us to be able to focus on logistics. We're not able to solve the right problem. But there's a couple other ideas that I wanted to bring up. So one of them is just seeing the front. And I think this is a criticism of this administration that I think is valid. So it's a different issue. But on the border, there's a lot of debate about how bad the border issue is. Is it a crisis Is it just normal patterns? And one of the criticisms of the VP is that she has not been to the border to see the front. So she doesn't actually know what's going on on the front. And the importance of seeing the front is that any information you have from analysts to your generals to your advisors, all of them are going to have a perspective that can be different when you actually see the lay of the land. It's difficult because Biden was never going to go to Afghanistan or Kamala was never going to go to Afghanistan and actually see what was happening there. They weren't actually going to see the front. There was a security concern. There's probably other issues. I mean, Biden doesn't seem to get out much from what I can tell. Maybe it's a health issue. But, But that's a really important point. If you contrast that with thinking about generals who are in charge of the overall mission, if they're in the United States when they need to be in country, they actually need to see the front and they could actually see where the Taliban was seizing control. I saw a GIF made by, I think, Financial Times where it showed the Taliban taking over increasing parts of the country over the last nine months. You saw it happening in real time. And if you're on the front, you're actually going to know it. You don't have to wait for someone to put the data together because you're actually going to be able to see some of that. So I think that's a really interesting, but just a powerful concept to take into mind. If your leaders aren't actually on the front and they're telling you what you heard in July, that we're never going to have to worry about the Danny resources going down, 
then now they're blaming. You should be asking, well, where were you on the front? Where were the resources that are on the front line? Why is it that they seem to have no real understanding of what's going on? Because that's the best way to do it, right? It's not from satellite photos and sure, it's not from a desk jockey sitting in, in Langley like Jack Ryan. That's the map is not the territory. You have to understand that when you're getting information reports, those reports may be wrong. They may be biased. It could be old information. You have to understand that what you're seeing may not be an accurate reflection of what's actually happening on the ground. So that's a good point. Yeah. You know, another concept that came to mind is base rates. I think I'm going to take this idea and maybe stretch it a little bit further than it normally is. But you can look at the problem, if it's a logistics problem in Afghanistan, and look at the number of people, look at the constraints relative to flying people through a, a single airport, and then the, the military hardware that's there that we want to either leave or destroy. You can start to build a model to say, what does it actually take for us to move all this? Do we really know that? Well, we can look at other instances in which we've had to move the military out in record time. And we can create that base rate to understand what are the challenges? What is the actual flow through that we would expect for us to be able to move our troops and our people out? We can create that base rate and we would expect our leadership to know what that is. Now, it does require a proper accounting of the people, of all of the uh, resources that we have on the ground. But if, if someone can, if they can't articulate what well, we don't actually know, then you know right there that they're not actually taking all of the resources that they have, the, which includes the history of us doing similar missions in other geographies, knowing that it takes to actually move those resources out. We, we know what those baselines are. Our military should know what that is. And they can apply it here for planning purposes. If that has not been done, you know it's not a logistics problem. We've got a deeper problem and it's, it's going again back to po- politics or humanitarian issues there's other issues at play. So I think both, you know, that's another concept you should keep in mind when you're hearing anybody create these justifications for why things have just resolved into this terrible, terrible disaster. That's what I would call our evacuation of Afghanistan right now. There's no questions in my mind that it's been an absolute botched operation. I wonder how much rose-colored glasses maybe came into play here because obviously the way we're leaving, obviously we didn't win. If we had won, we would be handing the keys of the country over to a friendly government and we would have a nice orderly withdrawal that would take months or years, who knows. But the fact that we're having to clear out the way we are tells me that, I mean, that's evidence there that we didn't win. But I've heard some administration officials trying to spin it and saying, well, we achieved our objectives over there. We gave them a military and a government. They just couldn't hold it. I think that's rose-colored, like I said, rose-colored glasses because it's just falling so fast. And so I just wonder how much they didn't think that this was going to happen, how much they really misread the situation and thought that they were going to have a nice orderly withdrawal. Again, I think it's a lack of being able to view the world in a real sense to actually see and admit to yourself what's going on around you. It's ignoring all the disconfirming evidence showing you that, no, we, we didn't achieve our objectives over there. There's a lack of authenticity and honesty in these discussions. The American people know it. The rest of the world knows it. You can't escape the facts on the ground. They're just too obvious. And so it's scary, frankly. We didn't spend nearly as much time on the exit as we did on the, the first part about the entry. We've discussed the models that you could apply here to make have a better understanding and be able to push back on some of that leadership. I guess I want to tie this up, this conversation with a, I guess, a more deeper or profound conversation about what this suggests about our government and its ability to execute. We have, from what I understand, 10,000 Americans that are in Kabul, and there's estimates of anywhere between 80,000 and 300,000 
50,000 civilians that collaborated with the American government over the last 20 years who are now at risk. And let's be clear what that means. They could be executed. They could be used as human shields. They can be used as a bartering chip. They can be used as sacrificial lambs to point to anybody else who would think about going against the Taliban, who are now going to be in charge of the government, that you don't want to mess with us, which ironically sounds a lot like the justification we use for going after Osama bin Laden. Listen, we we can kill you wherever you are. You don't want to mess with us. So there is a a massive cost that could be borne over the next months, several months coming out. The inability for us to run a logistics program to move it because of the political challenges, which could be, I've seen some people say it's a debate in the White House administration between perhaps the president and the vice president about the right approach. It could be a debate between the White House and the military and intelligence that we talked about. Regardless, there's a cost of 10,000 up to several hundred thousand people that are on the ground there that you knew about months ago, year and a half ago, two years ago, right? You knew about all these people. You knew the decision was made 18 months ago to leave. And when the administration took over, they agreed that they were going to do it. So not having the political will actually run an effective logistics program is horrifying because the human cost is so high. Am I thinking about this the wrong way? I think you're nailing it. And I think it's very hard. We've talked about this before, right? It's very hard to move from that baseline. It takes energy to move off of that, whether it's changing your own opinion about something or changing the way you do something. You have to put effort into resetting your baseline. And when your baseline is running things in a haphazard way, the way we've apparently been doing, I think it's erroneous to just think that someone's going to step up and say, "Okay, we're going to whip into shape now and get it all put together and we're going to make this run smooth, especially when you have a situation where agencies don't want to cooperate with each other. Right. We use politics as a sort of generalization for power play, for resource allocation. This is one of the reasons why I am generally defaulting to less government. I can't imagine when the co- when the stakes are this high and we have an inability to run what is arguably a logistics plan that we've run for clearly two decades in Afghanistan, as well as countless other countries, we don't have the will to do it. It makes me question where we would have the will in any other aspect of the government. And why, and, and you just know that as it grows and grows and grows, it creates the complexity of having to make those decisions. Unless we want to look a lot more like China, which is authoritarian, autocratic from the very top, and that's how they're able to make decisions quicker than we can, then you need to have a smaller, more nimble operating government. And you need tools to decentralize the power. Otherwise, you're going to end up with Afghanistan. And it's not just what we're dealing with here, where we have thousands of lives that are at stake. It's going to be the thousands of lives in our own country that could be at stake because of a poorly run domestic program. I'm definitely putting my two cents in here, but it again, it, it reinforces it. And maybe this is my own, I'm not going to say maybe it is my own bias, but it reinforces the value of having smaller systems that are more nimble, where you can't, you can't allow po- political powers to move away from the angle. The angle 12 months ago, and certainly when this administration should have been, we're going to take every single one of those citizens out. We're going to find a home for every single one of the Afghanistani citizens that no longer wants to live there. That is our goal. And that is what we're going to do. We're putting the logistics together to make it happen. And we're not going to leave any armaments behind that could be used by the military against our the government that we propped up. And one thing to keep in mind when we close out here is maybe this is an unfair comparison. I don't know. But the same government that has botched Afghanistan or the same government that botched Afghanistan, botched Iraq, is also the same government we're looking to to run our economy 
and to manage a COVID pandemic. Just keep that in mind. War, pandemic, I don't know how similar they are, how different they are, but I think we can look at a lot of the mental models that we talked about here today in relation to how we deal with an armed conflict, and we can apply that to a situation like COVID. And we can ask a lot of the same questions. Did we really do the cost-benefit analysis? What were different people's incentives? Those types of questions. And then we can apply it also to the economy, how the Fed and the government is managing our spending and interest rates and the value of a dollar and all of that. I think this conversation was great. And I think it goes beyond just talking about Afghanistan, just talking about wars, and it could be used in a lot of different contexts. We talked about a lot. We've got a, a nice long list here. Everything from incentives, the map is not the territory, begin with the end in mind, framing, biases towards our perception of reality, hubris, cost-benefit analysis, opportunity costs, inertia, reversibility, and more. I'm not going to read them all off. They'll be in the show notes. But I think there was a lot of good information this podcast. And I think there was a lot of great examples from Afghanistan. I'm going to say, if we can learn something from Afghanistan and move forward, we can all be better for it. Better thinkers and, and a better country and hopefully uh, better stewards of our beliefs and systems. Excellent recap. That will do it for this episode of Mentally Inscripted. We really hope you enjoyed it. I know it's a heavy topic, but as Scott just mentioned, there's a lot to learn, a lot to unpack. So hopefully you're one step closer to kicking all the tribal garbage peddled by politicians and media to the side, seeing the world with intelligence and rationality, which is exactly what we want. And if you want to get a copy of today's show notes and links to the resources mentioned in today's episode, go to mentallyunscripted.com. Check us out. That's where we put all the podcasts. That's our home base. We'd love for you to go out there, sign up and, and give us any of your thoughts. And wherever you are, if you're listening to this on Spotify, if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you are, give us a thumbs up. Tell us that you liked it. Leave your comments. Let us know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. We'd love to hear from you. And subscribe. subscribe and subscribe. And subscribe. 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 Thank you. All right. Well, until next time, take care. Be well. We'll speak with you real soon.